Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday, wherever you all may be. Here we are at it again with Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher. Many of you all are probably thinking to yourselves, we've covered so much about Paul Revere, but at the same time, we are reminded that the events of April 19, 1775, were not isolated events. They had been events that led up to the present events that were a series of other actions that over time led to April 19, 1775, being the day that the shots were heard around the world and that it was a day that was more of just an individual effort. Well, yes, individuals did perform heroic deeds, but the greater cause was that the actions of those days were rather a collective effort by an assembly of militia forces, an assembly of militia leadership, an assembly of townspeople coming together as one, although they had come together as one before hostilities broke out but they came together as one to not only just alert themselves or alert one another, but to alert other people. So this event, yes, Paul Revere may have done his part in warning the people of the greater, not just the greater Boston area, but of greater Massachusetts about the British presence But the message was once again very plain and simple. It's not so much the British are coming, it's, okay, the regulars are coming, what are you going to do with my warnings that I've given you? Well, we've already seen that the um, militia have answered the call, and they are out there fighting tooth and nail against the mightiest empire in the world. But we are going to be discussing the second part to the circle of fire, the long retreat. So we uh, have learned about uh, Lord Hugh Percy on the English side, or the British side rather. <laughs> After all, um, English side would make would be very confusing, considering that Parliament subjects are English-speaking people. But yet, just because they are English-speaking people, it doesn't mean that they share the same um, views as their. Um, as their um, mighty empire does, or that is the empire governing them, being England. So we've covered uh, Lord Hugh Percy. We're going to talk more about him in the second part. We're going to also talk about General William Heath. After all, he's the one leading the command on the um, American side. But when we ended uh, the previous night, we talked about how the British forces had somehow uh, regrouped in size. At around 2,000, I almost wonder. Okay, if they're at 2,000 now, will that give them an upper hand? You know, the numbers can always say one. Numbers can always say one thing, but just because you have an advantage in uh, troop size, it doesn't always mean that you're going to win the battle. So our first leadoff question will be the following: What military strategy? did General William Heath devise for combating Lord Percy's forces? This is a a unique one. So, 
be prepared to um, understand its um, importance as it plays out for this uh, podcast episode. General Heath wanted his forces to surround Percy's assembled forces, whom were in a square box formation. That is, you've got the um, middle formed up, and then you've got your um, rear and your front. In other words, you've got the center being the middle, then the front being out past the center, and then the rears being your left and your right. In other words, the rears are kind of like your blind sides. They are the flankers protecting what could come from behind or from um, opposite ends. I'm not a uh, military historian, but that's the best 101 military description I can give of this uh, formation. So, Lord Hugh Percy's forces are, um, have assembled in a square box formation, As, but as units, but um, I should say that um, General William Heath's uh, forces have um, assembled as units of moving rings. In other words, they are constantly on the move. They, um, you know, when we think of a ring, we might think of something that's circular, but it, it could start out circular in this case, but for um, General Heath, this... Um, Moving ring has to be on the go all the time. They have to be in front. They can be behind, but if one ring's going to be behind, the other one has to be in front. They can't stay, stay stagnant in one place. So the objective for the American forces was to engage British troops in deadly battles of attrition, or of attrition, rather, pardon me. Do any of you all know what attrition is means? Basically... Okay, before I tell you what attrition means, we've got deadly battles, or in this case, multiple skirmishes, where attrition is to be set in. That is, attrition being the practice of reducing the enemy's strength to where the opposition cannot achieve any victory, period. You're basically wearing the opposition out to the point where every time they get an attack, a surprise attack, the ability to regroup will take slower, it will take um, longer time, because you never know how many men you're going to lose in your unit, but the more men you lose, the harder it becomes to assemble. It's not like you can just go out and say, hey, bring some more men over here, because you never know what happens to the next unit nearby, and how they um, are disrupted by by these, uh, what do you call it, acts of uh, guerrilla-style warfare being irregular where uh, forces come out of nowhere, they fire, and then they fall back only for the enemy to um, not only be out of line but to try to chase the, um, the opposition uh, down to where the further you go into the woods or the further you go into uncharted territory, the harder it becomes to not only survive but simply to... Um, bring your uh, unit back to where it was before the attacks began. So, yes, this these battles of attrition were seen as multiple skir skirmishes that will reduce, where multiple skirmishes would come into play, reducing the enemy's strength. 
Is it fair to say that the New England militia were well experienced in skirmish-style warfare? True or false, folks? True. Why do you why do you think they prefer um, skirmish-style warfare fighting? Well, for one, uh, casualties can be minimal. Yes, you still have the potential to be caught off guard by the enemy. It's one thing to wage a war with the enemy like England out on open field, but if you don't have confidence in your men to wage an open war battlefield-style event, then if you put them out there, the greater the losses there will be, the greater the breakdown in communication. Um, Yes, the um, New England militia are well-disciplined and well-experienced, but I think it's also fair to say that they don't believe in perhaps putting all their forces in one one, uh, place. If you put all of your forces in one place, then where are you going to turn to for backup when it's ever so needed? So in other words, by fighting um, in skirmish-style warfare, you're not putting all your men out in one particular uh, setting. So, um, to sum it up, that the uh, New England militia truly did not believe that they felt that if war were fought out in open battlefields, the greater the uh, chances of more lives being lost, and also the greater um, the confusion, the greater the likelihood that. Um, that perhaps men themselves would um, would break under intense pressure. So, you know, as the war itself will expand past Massachusetts, uh, General uh, George Washington, when he becomes commander of the Continental Army, will be in for a very uh, awkward, um, or I should say a rude awakening, especially when the fighting goes to uh, New York around Long Island, uh, Kipps Bay, uh, Brooklyn Heights, he will be in for a rude awakening knowing that um, he has put um, his men out in the open battlefields against the best army in the world. And it's not because it, it's not because Washington's cocky. No, he's not a cocky individual. It's that so many of those men who fight in the New York campaign have never seen actual combat. The only kind of... Um, Fighting, they've perhaps, um, or I don't know if I'd say fighting, the only kind of thing they've probably done in terms of a rifle or a musket is to go out and hunt um, wild game. If anybody has fought from a previous war, it would have been the French and Indian War, but those uh, soldiers probably come far and by few. Now, not to get ahead of the game, but that's, but I'm just telling you all an example of how different the style of uh, fighting was in Massachusetts compared to, say, uh, New York. Would the plan for a circle of skirmishes be easy to execute? Uh, no. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. It's just that, you know, what looks good on paper sometimes isn't always easy to execute. But then again, if you have the right leadership, anything is possible. But you've got to be able to have a plan in play that can really um, uh, finish the job. Because it's like they say, it's one thing to have something written down. It's one thing to 
propose something, but if you don't have the right leadership to help start and finish the job, then then I hate to say this, but one would probably be up a creek. So would the plan for the circle of skirmishes be easy to execute? Uh, no. Uh, the first task involved assembling rings of men firmly in place around Percy's brigade, which also included maintaining a certain degree of command and control over the troops. Okay, so you've got to have some order. You've got to have some discipline. You've got to be able to have leaders who um, know how to lead um, brigades of uh, militiamen from point A to point B. And if that's not enough, you've got to uh, secondly make sure that, mili- that militia and minutemen were on the same page when it came to dispersing and adhering from the ranks above. Okay, when your commander tells you to, to disperse, that means you need to, um, you need to either fall back into line or you need to um, retreat with your unit as, an, as one, um, as one um, functioning uh, unit. In other words, if you're going to disperse, don't go disperse on your own. You disperse with your regiment in the most effective way there is. And yes, adhering to the ranks above, um, we have uh, learned, obviously, uh, on this day, April 19th, 1775, that communication has not been a successful tool uh, for the British, most notably with the uh, breakdown in um, relaying sensitive uh, letters that were sealed as for instructions on where to go. But how about just the regular soldiers? not adhering to the uh, commands of um, especially a um, Lieutenant Colonel Francis um, Smith, who um, pretty much had to save the day at Lexington Common by uh, getting uh, soldiers back in line, even if they weren't under his command, and yet only few of them adhered to his um, instructions. So, yes, these are going to be the same issues that even um, Brigadier... um, General uh, William Heath will have to um, be very vigilant about. That's not to say that uh, militia and Minutemen are uh, well-disciplined people. That doesn't mean, though, at the same time that there could be a couple of them who might um, have the potential of falling out of line. Once uh, General Heath arrived to Lexington, he went about reassembling uh, the regiment impacted by Lord Percy's artillery, as well as straightening out other units which had gotten broken up during the pursuit, or I should say chase from Concord. Couriers were also sent to advise units marching from towns further away about what was getting ready to ensue at Lexington. Remember, folks, you know, retreating, that means we are, we are trying to head back to um, our original um, starting point, And for the British, their objective is to uh, retreat back to uh, Boston or as close to Boston as they can get. You know, the couriers were the ones who also helped uh, relay the the word about the British coming. Well, couriers do more than just deliver the mail. They are uh, getting the word out. After all, Paul Revere's ride was more than just about him. It was about the whole courier network system as a whole, which paid uh, significant dividends. So, at about 3.45 p.m. on April the 19th, 1775, 
British columns finally began their march, but American militia forces had already closed on them to where the British rear guard became heavily exposed. So, would there be a deadly attack coming on? Yes. The Royal Welch Fusiliers, they bore the brunt of this uh, militia attack surprise that resulted in 36 out of 218 men being killed or wounded. 36 doesn't seem like a lot, but out of 218 men, those losses do add up. Not just so much those who've died, but those who are wounded. Because remember, it's not like they can just call, you know, we don't have telephones to say, hey, uh, Bravo or Charlie Command, we need backup right away. Bring another hundred men out as soon as possible. Nope, uh, we don't have that kind of sophisticated technology at that point just yet. But to lose uh, 36 men either by death or some being wounded out of that number, it is very hard to replace, to say the least. The heavy losses amongst the Fusilier Regiment would lead to Lord Percy having to make a multitude of adjustments at this point on uh, April 19th. He replaces the uh, Fusiliers with the reserve of Royal Marines, but the Royal Marines don't fare any better. They lose more than 70 men on this day. The Marines would ultimately be replaced by the King's Own and the 47th Foot. Wow, if you're Lord Percy, you've got a lot to um, to uh, take in and so many what-ifs on your mind, okay? What if now the king's own and the 47th foot can't hold up? Then I have nothing to fall back onto. And, and if I don't have them to fall back onto, then who's going to defend me or whom can I turn to to, um, to defend my terrain? Now, we mentioned from the previous podcast about Dr. Joseph Warren, who uh, was a member of the Sons of Liberty, and he and William Heath were very good friends. Did Dr. Warren fight alongside General William Heath? Yes. Warren helped advise Heath in keeping militiamen by moving constantly forward, along with ensuring that all forces dispersed properly. You know, Dr. Joseph Warren, you know, he didn't go to military school. Um, He is a doctor. He is a very well-respected doctor in his community. You know, at one point, he was catering to both patriots and, um, or I rather should say, Whigs and Tories. There were many loyalists in Boston who had the utmost respect. Even uh, when uh, General Thomas Gage arrived to Massachusetts, He learned about Dr. Joseph Warren. As a matter of fact, many uh, of the high-ranking British officers were so impressed by Dr. Joseph Warren's ability to um, help those who were sick that um, they didn't even view him as a threat. But after um, 11-year-old Christopher Sider died in 1770, just weeks before the Boston Massacre, Joseph Warren tried desperately to save that young boy's life who was, um, he was shot by um, a loyalist uh, business shopkeeper whose building was vandalized by Christopher Sider and some other boys, but uh, sadly this uh, businessman took matters into his own hands and shot the boy. 
the boy died, and that's what basically changed uh, Dr. Joseph Warren's outlook, not just on life itself, but whom he really should be affiliating himself with, and that was being a Whig, a.k.a. a patriot. So Dr. Warren is pretty much at every um, meeting. He's pretty much, um, by 1775, it's fair to say that he has become public enemy number one to the British. And if you want to learn more about Dr. Joseph Warren, um, I read this book two, two years ago written by Christian de Spigna, Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's Forgotten Hero. Excellent read. As a matter of fact, for those of you who are new to my podcast, uh, you should um, check out my uh, podcast series on that book, which I did uh, last year. You would find it very well worth um, worth uh, learning about. So, yes, Dr. Warren was there with General Heath and um, willing to risk everything by helping um, militiamen move constantly along with ensuring that all forces knew how to disperse properly. So, uh, for Brigadier uh, General William Heath and Dr. Warren, they helped lead militia regiments from Essex and Middlesex to attack from the north where heavy pressure amongst firing upon Lord Percy's northern flankers remained steady. There are counties in uh, Massachusetts called Essex and Middlesex. Well, here in Virginia, we have two counties just just for the same names, and they are in uh, what's called the northern neck of Virginia, which isn't too far from where I live. And believe it or not, in England, we have Essex, and we also have Middlesex. It's amazing just how many um, English uh, towns and villages in the United States that are named after uh, places in England. You know, even in Virginia, there's uh, Sussex County, there's Surrey, um, there's Essex, Middlesex, Northumberland. I mean, I could go on and on, but it's just amazing just how many um, towns and uh, cities and villages are named after um English um, places in England. Uh, Despite American officers playing a prominent role in the fighting, did many company officers sustain injuries? Sadly, I hate to say this, but yes. Many were either killed or severely wounded, and town elders themselves who fought either as volunteers or became battlefield leaders due to social standing did not escape being killed or wounded. No matter what your rank was, as long as you were putting your life on the line, you were valued for something. And that's the way it should should have been and ought to still be remembered for. Was Lord Percy stunned by American commander's skills? Yes, he was very impressed by how officers themselves managed their forces to where Percy himself began to no longer view militia and New Englanders as rabble or unruly crowds of people. In other words, he had to see for himself that, okay, these militiamen may not be well-dressed like my forces are, but they know how to fight. They know how to uh, fire a musket. They know how to reload. They know how to clean and, and assemble their muskets. They know how to uh, march properly. They know how to um, 
take orders from their commanders without questioning. They know um, not to do things without their um, orders, without their commander's um, authority. Maybe he's beginning to wonder if the militiamen are more disciplined than his own men. Well, we might have to find that out here soon, but I should also admit that, uh, well, yes, the American militia forces have really um, surprised, they've really taken the enemy by surprise in terms of their discipline, in terms of knowing how to um, function. It doesn't always mean that they themselves are 100% perfect either. And let's just keep in mind that even the mightiest empire in the world, its army isn't 100% perfect, and we've already seen that on April so far on April 19th, 1775. So our next question will be the following here. Were there any units of New England cavalry that participated in battle combat? Yes, only a small number of units moved by horse, but those men riding by horse were experienced hunters and veterans of previous wars, such as the uh, French and Indian War. They rode as mounted infantry. You know, having a ho- it's one thing to have a horse, but I will tell you this. Owning a horse doesn't always have to be con- confined to someone who is uh, well-to-do, a.k.a. wealthy, but when a man owns a horse or says, or if he owns multiple horses, that's his, that could really be considered a livelihood for him. You know, it's one thing to travel by, um, or it's, it's one thing to walk from point A to point B, but when you have a horse and buggy, that's very revolutionary because it's one way of being able to get around faster. And if your horse was stolen, uh, that was pretty much the equivalent of stealing a man's livelihood. So, yes, to have uh, militiamen riding by horse, even though it's small numbers, that's very revolutionary unto itself. The mounted infantry could ride ahead of the enemy, a.k.a. the British, to where they could dismount and fight by foot, then ride away to fight again somewhere else. So think about this, folks. If you're riding by horse and you're chasing the enemy down, you can um, go into a secure location, get off your horse, mount the horse so that obviously it doesn't take off on its own and run away. But while the horse has been properly secured, these um, mounted militia uh, men can uh, go about hunting the enemy down in secret um, locations. So when you, when it's very safe to say that in times of war, if you have a horse and you use the horse to your advantage, you're going to be able to get around faster than, say, by marching. However, depending on the time of day or night that you begin your mission by marching, you can still get to your destination and you can still be one step ahead. But having a horse, that says it all right there, folks. Did Lord Percy's officers below him have difficulties in assembling their artillery pieces due to constant firing upon American militia forces? Yes. But here's the greater problem. The greater problem itself revolved around tending to wounded men whom rode on the guns of royal artillery, 
Caring for the wounded was constantly being interrupted by militia fire coming from all sides. Okay, so let's say five or seven men have just been wounded. Are you going to leave them there to die? I don't think that would be a, a smart thing to do. If, uh, after all, if they are w- wounded, wouldn't you want to see to it that they could survive? Sure. But let's keep in mind, folks, you know, we don't have a nearby hospital to go to um, in 1775 that is probably going to be welcoming to British troops. So if you're on the side of the British, for example, and you've got some fellow comrades who are wounded, your options are very limited, and it's probably fair to say that you will just have to bring those wounded men with you in the hopes that wherever you go next that they can get the help that they need to ensure that maybe if not all five or six survive, that you hope that maybe two or three would at best. So just remember, folks, that um, it's one thing to be fired upon, but the greater problems can mean more than just um, trying to assemble militia, to assemble artillery while being fired, being fired upon. How about looking after the wounded as well? There's nothing, nobody's immune from anything when it comes to war. And I think both sides are learning this right now. Were American militia forces vulnerable, and if so, where at? All right, so here's where we're going to talk about a particular uh, town that that experienced a very, very, um, what do you call it, a very tense day of bloodshed. So, yes, um, American militia forces were vulnerable, but where did the vulnerability lie at stake? In the village of Monotomy. Now, it's spelled M-E-N-O-T-O-M-Y. I could say Minotomy or Minotomy, but I'm going to say Monotomy. For those of you who are from Massachusetts and could be listening, I hope I got that pronunciation right. After all, if I didn't, um, it's not the end of the world, but at least I got Harvard pronounced right instead of saying Harvard. <laughs> but anyways, the village of Monotomy would see um, a lot of tense action to where bloodshed would be, um, would, would be at its full um, might before day's end. I don't say that with a lot of pride either, but Sometimes you got to describe something like that so that um, the list, so that the audience knows just how um, how um, painful the events of a that a particular village saw played out. So, smaller um, militia parties from Middlesex and Essex and Essex counties took positions in houses and yards along the road but did so against the advice of experienced officers. So, I hate to point it out to you here, folks, but it wasn't the officers giving the bad advice. It was soldiers perhaps not thinking for themselves, thinking that they knew more than the officers did because of where they lived and that maybe they knew the terrain better. So, These men took positions in houses and yards along the road, and yes, did it against the advice of the experienced officers. 
British flankers out of nowhere surround the terrain adjacent to the property dwellings, and a fight ensued at a gentleman's home being Jason Russell's, where British grenadiers stormed a building where 11 American soldiers would die from bayonet wounds. You know, it's one thing to be shot, and that can be um, unpleasant, it can be scary, horrifying, whatever you want to call it. How about being bayoneted to death? And maybe not just once, but how about being bayoneted multiple times, say six or more times? Can you imagine an 18-inch sword? I I don't know if I'd say a sword, but you know, a bayonet is a sharp point, 18 inches long, can you imagine that being that going through your body? I don't. Of course, now bayonets, uh, the term bayonet, uh, it actually derived from um, a village in France called Bayonne, spelled B-A-Y-O-N-N-E. Believe it or not, there's even a town in New Jersey called Bayonne, New Jersey. But that's where bayonet um, originated from in France. And bayonets were used usually as a means of finishing off the enemy. When the enemy was on the run or, and um, confused, um, shocked to the point that they did not know how to regroup, the uh, leading force who's wanting to finish off the assault would fix their bayonets at, right as they got to about a 50-yard, um, as they were positioned 50 yards from the uh, retreating party to basically say, okay, now it's time to just completely finish you off. Well, in this case, it wasn't traditional battlefield, traditional um, battle head-to-toe out in an open battlefield, but it's fair to say that these uh, British uh, flankers were all, had already assembled their bayonets to where they knew what they were doing once they in, entered inside, the, um, in, inside Jason Russell's um, home. The fighting in... Mononymy was tense, house to house, room to room, hand to hand. I'm going to give you an example, folks, and this is one that uh, should remind us there again of the horrors of what war brings. I'm not saying this for gratification purposes, folks, but it's a reminder. War is not a game. War does leave scars, not just to those who fought, but to innocent civilians and bystanders. Let's take the example of a fellow named Samuel Whittemore. By April 19th of 1775, or around this time, he's 78 years of age. So think about this. If he's 78 years old, that means he would have been born either in 1696 or 1697. You think about what this man has seen in his life. Very few people even make it to almost 80 years old by this point, so... He's really what we could consider uh, someone who has outlived his um, expected uh, life expectancy. I mean, if you lived to be over 50 years of age, you probably had, con- had lived a long life. But he is an old soldier, an ardent Whig, and when he heard about regulars coming, he went about arming himself with more than just one um, piece of weaponry? How about a musket? How about two pistols? How about a cavalry saber? He's got the whole nine yards with him, folks. 
but he's not afraid to um, to do whatever is necessary. You know, he knows that there's a chance he could get shot. He could die. But he also knows that he's not afraid to stand up for what he believes in, being um, freedom, independence. So why not take matters into his own hands and show the Redcoats what he's made up of? Okay? He kills a soldier with the musket. He's 150 yards from the road. He has taken his defense position behind a stone wall, if that tells you anything right there. But he has killed a soldier with a musket. He has shot two British soldiers with, with both of his pistols. But as he reached for his saber sword, an enemy soldier shot part of Whittemore's face off. Is that not gruesome or what, folks? Now, I don't, when, you know, when we think part of his face, could that mean that half of his face has been shot off? Or just a small section? I would like to think a small section. That's what I would, would really like to th- believe, because, as it turns out, after being shot, after part of his face had been shot off, He was found barely alive after being bayoneted 14 times by the enemy. How can you even be barely alive after being bayoneted 14 times? Friends friends saw him. They saw him in terrible agony. They carried him to a doctor in Medford. And had his friends not arrived when they had, he probably would have died. This man survived, and by the grace of God, Samuel Whittemore lived another 18 years until he died at age 96. I I can say that Samuel Whittemore is a great example of survival of the fittest. He didn't go, he, he started the job, and yet despite being wounded, he finished. He lived to see our nation not only declare its separation from England, he lived to see us defeat the mightiest empire in the world. Samuel Whittemore also saw our nation um, go about developing a um, document that still exists after 234 years, a.k.a. the United States Constitution. And Samuel Whittemore even lived to see George Washington become our nation's first president. Wow, if that's not um, amazing, I don't know what is. How did uh, British regulars respond to resistance by individual householders? Well, they forced their way into people's homes in an unlawful manner, where family members were shot on the spot without any questions getting asked. How about unreasonable search and seizure, entering into people's homes without probable cause? Of course, if you're the British being the mightiest empire and knowing how things have been going uh, since shots were heard around the world, they don't care about they don't care about the um, everyday people. They're just here to they're not only there to serve to fight for their king and country, they're also here to tell us our, their subjects that hey look, you may have um, you may want your independence, but we still own you all. So. This is our property, whether you like it or not. 
So if that's bad enough, how about the same acts of violence taking place at Cooper Tavern in, in Minotomy, or in Monotomy, where certain individuals or persons were found shot and stabbed to death in a profound, barbaric manner? There again, they just entered um, the tavern without any uh, probable cause and just uh, pretty much... If they asked a question or two and uh, the, the tavern keepers or the people there didn't know, they were just shot on sight. No questions asked. I believe, I believe it's fair to say that, uh, that all the fighting in, in Mononymy produced the heaviest casualties on April 19th of 1775. Americans lost 25 men with 9 wounded, whereas the British had 40 deaths with 8 wounded. So yes, we've probably been led to believe for years that the, mul that, that the greatest number of people who died were at Lexington. Nope, that's not the case. It was in, a, in a Mononymy. So, our next question is following. Did Lord Percy along with other British officers, lose control of their men at Mononymy. Yes. Especially when soldiers began vandalizing homes by the road, where many, where many of lives had been lost on the American side. But other dwellings weren't spared either, like taverns and churches, which got stripped of their valuables, well, when you think of a church and its valuables, how about, how about communion um, cups? How about communion ware in general? After all, you know, when, you, when I think of communion, I think of, um, I grew up as an Episcopalian. Of course, now I'm a Baptist. My wife converted me into one. That seems revolutionary right there. But I remember uh, when attending Episcopalian services when I had gotten confirmed, the uh, ritual, and it still is, uh, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. So, and you drank out of the, um, you drank the wine through a, a communion cup. So, it's one thing to steal things from uh, a church, but essential valuables that can't be replaced, yeah, that's a big deal. So, losing control of British troops at Mononymy was very similar to what had played out from Lexington Green earlier that day on April 19, 1775. So, if there were any two uh, British officers that did a great job of restoring authority amongst the troops, it was none other than Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith and uh, Lord Hugh Percy. Now, once British forces cleared out from Mononymy, where did they enter next? Would there be any more fighting? So they entered next in um, Cambridge, which is home uh, to Harvard University and to some other uh, prominent uh, colleges and universities in Boston. The second part is, um, in terms of any more fighting taking place, is a yes. As British forces entered into Cambridge, the fighting became very intense, especially with the increase in militia regiments lined up ready to go. There's a place uh, known as Watson's Corner, which is a crossroad junction. Militia from Cambridge and Brookline were caught and killed by enemy flankers. 
that's not good. But at the same time, you know what's also not good for the British? They're, they're in trouble because they are running low on ammunition supplies. So if you're running low on ammunition supplies, how are you going to be able to sustain your army as a whole? You're not going to have a whole lot more time left to be able to uh, fight, especially as the day is getting closer and closer to an end. And remember, people um, were working in this day and time until the sun went down. Once the sun goes down, you really can't... I guess you could engage in some kind of fighting, but you run the... You, you run a great risk of, um, if you're not careful, of perhaps shooting your own men when the objective is obviously to shoot at the enemy. So, But it's bad enough that you're running low on ammunition supplies when considering that you only have eight miles left until you get to your final, um, to your final destination spot. So time is not on the side of the British. Were there multiple bridges in and out of Cambridge? No, there was only one bridge that laid ahead just before Cambridge. Both sides did things to the bridge in hopes of foiling opposition strategy plans. The Watertown militia removed the bridge's planks to where the British to where British forces could not cross over. The planks were hurled into the Charles River. Okay? This really puts now the British in an even bigger rock and hard place. So what can they do? What is Lord Percy going to do? Does he have any trickery up his sleeve, or up his sleeves, I should say, that will save the day for the British? Well, for starters, was Lord Percy's brigade in danger once having marched into Cambridge? Yes. But he made an instant game-changing decision where he immediately turned his column away from the bridge and sent it eastward to Kent Lane, which fed into Charlestown. The sudden change of course by Lord Percy ended up catching militia forces off guard to where they scrambled into positioning. Well, any time a sudden change like that takes place, anything is bound to happen where the opposition not only will be caught off surprise, but it will take them longer to assemble into a new position. Why was uh, Prospect Hill important? Well, it's another Amer well another American force had assembled there, but overall the hill itself controlled the road to Charlestown. It was at this spot where Lord Percy's last round of ammunition for artillery came into play. So this is a real do or die situation for Lord Percy. Once he uses his last round of ammunition, it's over. It's not so much over, over from an ammunition perspective, but how about for a survival perspective? I'm sure many of you all are already thinking now, we've got them. We've got them right where we want them. All we have to do is just finish them off and, and, it's, and it's over with. Militia forces stayed on Percy's tail, but it was Colonel Timothy Pickering who became hesitant to engage Lord Percy's forces, which ultimately in the end allowed for the British Brigade to advance onward.
what in the world is Colonel Timothy Pickering thinking? I mean, should this man even be a colonel? I mean, how should he even be leading men? Well, even the best leaders make mistakes. I can point out, though, that Colonel Timothy Pickering overall did perform admirably well throughout the American Revolution, the war itself, but starting out right now, I don't believe he has earned high marks. Pickering's political views got in the way. You know, when you're fighting a war, it's one thing, but you can't let politics, you can't let too much politics dictate your um, thinking to where it uh, interferes with the ability to not only affect, to communicate effectively, but how about um, make um, instant critical decisions that will either make or break um, the potential of securing a uh, victory when it's needed. Well, for um, Colonel um, Timothy Pickering, he did let uh, political views take into, come into uh, play where it uh, clouded his um, overall judgment. Um, he was very conservative. Some historians believe he had been hoping for compromise versus avoiding complete de- defeat for the British troops. Pickering's defense claimed that General William Heath had halted the advancement, but Heath himself adamantly denied this, this charge or claim. Regardless of the truth, Lord Hugh Percy's brigade had been allowed to pass by the last American force which could have prevented safe entry into Charlestown. This last American force was ready to go, the problem was that Colonel Timothy Pickering wasn't. So it's not always the fault of those below the generals. It's usually the fault lies from above, that is, within the inner circle. So I believe it's fair to say that April 19, 1775, for starters, saw a lot of things. I believe it's fair to say that there was uh, communication breakdowns on both sides. But if you asked me who had it worse, I would say the British. Where do you think it really showed um, at its worst on the American side? What we just discussed a a moment ago. The Americans did everything right on this day. I can still say that they came away strong. And I can say internally that they um, did achieve good victories where morale was at a very um, high level. As for the British, their morale has taken a huge toll. And when I'm on the air again next with you all, we're going to discuss uh, something that I believe is worth sharing about, the aftermath of the Second Battle of Lexington and Concord. But But we will also talk about how the news of the battles at Lexington and Concord reached the other colonies. After all, folks, many in the in colonial America feel that the problems going on in Massachusetts are really a Massachusetts problem. It might be fair to say that um, Pennsylvania especially sees it that way. They believe that Massachusetts, Pennsylvanians believe that Massachusetts, that the men of Massachusetts, or the people of Massachusetts rather, have created this um, bad firestorm that has um, that has led um, to such um, 
discord and uh, unnecessary tension amongst the mother country to where people in Pennsylvania are very worried about whether or not a relationship is um, going to still be intact. John Dickinson, who is probably one of the, um, well, I should say John Dickinson of Pennsylvania was a, um, he was an ardent um, American, or an ar- I don't know if I'd say an ardent patriot, but he was hesitant about um, independence. And the reason for it was because he firmly believed that if a country was going to declare its independence from another country, it needed to have game plans put in play. There needed to be broad consensus on reaching a unanimous decision to to file for separation. But if there was not a broad, unanimous um, agreement on separation, then how can um, people, as a nation, live independent to where they can coexist with one another without having to rely upon someone else from above to look after them, or let alone resolve their problems? So for John Dickinson of Pennsylvania... He um, empathizes with the people of Massachusetts. He empathizes with those who, who want independence. But for John Dickinson, it's a question of how you are going to be able to secure independence, not just short-term, but long-term. For him, okay, if you declare your independence from England tomorrow, what are you going to replace? Um, what are you going to, if you're going to establish a new government, what are you going to put in its place? And if you do put something in its place, is it going to still be there a year from now? So this fighting in Massachusetts explains the dilemma that many of our forefathers have who are skeptical about wanting to um, officially de- declare their separation from England. They, don't, they have a lot to lose. Well, even the people of Massachusetts had a lot to lose on this day, but yet they proved to the mightiest empire that they weren't afraid to to, uh, go head-to-toe and to risk it all. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I look forward to being back on the air again next, and I look forward to uh, sharing with you all the news of how uh, the fighting in uh, Lexington and Concord reached the other colonies, regardless of what people's um, personal views are towards this matter at this point. But we should be reminded that in 1775, if people heard about something right away, it was through means of another person or a group of persons. We don't have breaking news alert stations. If you learn about it in the newspaper, the news itself is already two weeks old at best. But even that alone is significant news because it's also breaking news for its time. Thank you again, as always, for listening to my podcasts. You all are amazing listeners. Um, Thank you again from the bottom of my heart, and I look forward to being on the air again with you all next. Take care and stay safe.